are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. We are back with our final podcast from Seamus 2019. In this episode, we are going to look at composers with the dual roles of composer and performer for the pieces they presented at the conference. We start with a piece I first saw at the Splice Festival in November of 2018 by composer Ari Su. Ari is currently an assistant professor of computer music and digital arts in Technology in Music and Related Arts, or Tamara, at the Oberlin Conservatory. Well, I'm sitting here with Ari Su, and um, your piece on the conference is called Music Box. I actually saw this for the first time at uh, Splice at BG. Was that yes, the premiere? Splice. Uh, no, I premiered it in Oberlin, okay. I think maybe a year before that. Okay. So um, I was, I, you know, I saw it at Splice. I was super intrigued uh, by it. So it's kind of, it, it has quite a bit going on. So kind of tell us uh, what's happening in, in this piece, Music Box. Sure. Uh, well, it's for student Wurlitzer butterfly piano, which is a tiny piano. I forget how many keys, I think it's 30 keys, but uh, I picked that instrument because it was portable and it allowed me to make preparations on it that I wouldn't normally be able to do at a venue on a nice piano. And it, the piece is a guided improvisation and it starts with exciters uh, vibrating on the strings with some plastic attached to it, so I get uh, that are driven by low frequency tones. Uh-huh. Um, so that's where you get the jittery vibration from. And then as the piece progresses, uh, there are some pre-recorded collaged sounds of mechanical of mechanical sounds uh, that. Are the basis, like kind of conceptual basis of the piece, and I could improvise with those, and then the exciter, the low tones come in at the end again. So you essentially just have a, a, a batch of materials that you have that you can play with during performance, whether they be, um, you know, pre-recorded electronics or the live sound coming from the instrument. Are there any um, live uh, manipulations happening, like? Uh, because you do uh, have a microphone on the, yes. you know, so are you doing anything with that live sound? In, I mean, is this in Max or what's it running? So I'm using Max to feed the exciter tones, mm-hmm. but there's no live processing. So okay. the microphones are for amplification. Okay. The, so- the sounds are pretty small, tiny. Yeah. Otherwise. Cool. So, um, you know, you, you've said this is a guided improvisation piece, and it, it kind of seems like, I, you know, seeing some of your other work, that improvisation kind of factors heavily into your other projects. How did you, you know, where did improvisation come into your life? Sure. That's a great question. Well, I'm trained as a classical pianist, and so the transition into composing was difficult because it was hard to get out of muscle memory. It was hard to, anytime I tried to write, especially for piano, I just started playing the music that I knew. And so the improv came in, I think, after I played uh, John Cage Prepared Piano for a recital. I just left the preparations in and started writing my own music with that because it got me out of pitch world, which was a big barrier, and into timbre. 
And so it just became a playground for making sounds. And then I would record all those sessions and build pieces from the improvised sessions. And I think I just pretty much used that throughout, even for the dance work, works that I do. And most of my music is generated that way, starting from improv sessions and then going back and listening and you know, capturing parts of that that I like assembling them yeah I mean that's I think that's always a really attractive way to work because you know it's like you you just put material out and then w kind of without thinking about it and then later go back and say okay what can I what can I cull out of this you know what uh what are the interesting parts how, how does this fit with this other thing that I did on another day and uh yeah it's I I I mean, you know, there there are always multiple ways of working, but I think that's a really attractive one because it, you know you have such the um, the immediacy of connecting um, idea to sound instead of you know, oh, I'm going to take this theory idea and you know rotate it and blah blah blah. And it it just takes so long for that idea to actually be translated into sound. So yeah, that that seems like a really interesting way. Do you do you still kind of work like that? Yes, I do. Uh especially for instrumental music uh, I'll you know sit with a, a musician and we'll improvise sometimes and and capture some of those those sessions too what are uh, I mean you mentioned that you have uh, exciters you know that are in the piano are there any other you know any other gadgets or any other stuff that's going on inside the piano Yes, that's my favorite thing to do is find things to put inside the piano. So that piece, uh, Music Box, has ping pong balls, um, a small bike chain, and uh, an ebo, which is uh, an electronic bow. So that's where I get the sustain tones from. Uh, there are screws and washers inserted in the strings to get the plucky sounds. And... I think that's mostly it for that. Oh, and I play some harmonics um, just with my hands. Right. Yeah. So um, in terms of this being a guided improvisation, like, do you, could this be done by someone else? Yeah. Is there, is there, a, there's enough of uh, a score, a structure to be able to, for, you know, ooh, I have a student butterfly uh, Wurlitzer, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so that's possible? Yeah, definitely possible. I have a series of pieces that are similar or, or don't use the exciters, but are basically text based with some notation, with also staff notation um, that other people have played. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly portable, and I usually send the recording as a as a, a guide. But I'm mostly hoping that they come up with, you know, new new interpretations. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's interesting. Using kind of like the recording, or even or even the video as as kind of notation in a way, you know, because for for a lot of this stuff that we do, um, it's. it's like music, the actual written music notation falls, fall, like fails so quickly. And it's like, well, I could say in a hundred words what you're supposed to do, or you could just watch this like 30 second video. Right. Do, do you also do that too? Yeah, you mean the video scores? Yeah. Um, not so much, but you saying that reminds me of two of my favorite quotes. One, um, Matthew Bertner saying, uh, notation is a balance between precision and evocation. And I think for some of these piano scores, they lean more towards evocation 
you know, get this kind of mood or, you know, create this ambiance. And then the other quote is Cardew for Treatise saying that a score is a way to ask the musician how to move. And so it becomes more of a choreography. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I could I could totally see how that you know will relate to this piece. So um, uh, obviously we're going to listen to it, but you know you can also go to Ari's website and see a video uh, that's I think it's on YouTube or I mean it's on your website, but it's also hosted on YouTube. So um, what is that website? So if people want to either go watch the video or go see uh, go see other works of yours, like you do, I mean. This piece is just kind of scratching the surface of all the different kinds of things you do as a, as an artist. So I highly encourage people to go to your website and like look at some of the um, uh, some of the other pieces. I mean, you you mentioned the dance pieces. I'm just going to leave it right there. If you're intrigued, go to Ari's website and check out some of the dance pieces. Um, so uh, so where can people find that uh, you know find that stuff? And also, if they you know wanted to connect with you, where could they do that? Yes, thank you for saying that. Um, it's it's arisu.com, A-U-R-I-E-H-S-U.com. And I have a, my emails on there, and all of the pieces are also on there. So thanks for checking it out. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So we're going to listen to this piece right now. This is Music Box by Ari Sue. Thank you. 
Next, I sat down with composer and performer Silen Wellington. Silen's piece, When My Body Becomes the Art, was the 2019 Seamus Allen Strange Award winner. It's an annual award to celebrate the best undergraduate or high school electroacoustic composition. Silen is currently pursuing an undergraduate degree in music composition and psychology at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I'm here with Silen Wellington, and uh, you did your piece that is When My Body Becomes the Art, and you did it yesterday. Correct. And this piece is for fixed media and uh, live performance art, right? Correct, yes. And the, you won the, uh, the Seamus 2019 Alan Strange Award with this piece. So congratulations, that's awesome. Thank you. So this piece is pretty much an incredible personal story of yours. And it's kind of an account of your journey. And can you just kind of, it's a lot of uh, spoken text along with, you know, some, some pitched elements and other fixed media elements along with the performance art. Can you just kind of tell us about the story of how this piece came about, what the general, and what this general journey is that you're telling? Sure. So the piece uses recordings of my voice since I went on testosterone in 2017. And when I started T, I started recording the, me saying the same poem about every three days, four days, a couple times a week. And then after nine months of that, I started to put the poem, piece it back together using different recordings of my voice on T. So the piece starts with me saying it is... Tuesday, February 23rd, I forget the exact date, um, <laughs> day one of testosterone. And then that first prologue movement takes day four of testosterone, day five, and you can hear my dro- voice dropping throughout that first hundred or so days. Um, and then the rest of the poem describes my decision to go on it, basically. So that's the the fixed element. And then when I perform it live, I do a few different things. I start by putting mascara on my tiny mustache, which um, harkens to some of my drag experiences because I perform a lot of drag. And that's on those stages is where I found some of my gender identity and expression. Um, and then I rip up a letter from a therapist because in a lot of places you still need to get a letter from a therapist to go on hormones. Um, like someone saying that you're trans enough to start hormones, which I think is awful, but also unfortunate with the way our medical system works right now, because if it wasn't a pathological diagnosis of gender dysphoria, then insurance companies would consider it cosmetic. Not that my insurance covers any of my testosterone, um, but some people's insurance does cover stuff like that. Um, Anyways, then I take off my binder and kind of strip down to underwear and a t-shirt and cast a circle hearkening to my pagan spiritual practices because I feel like going on testosterone for me was a spiritual journey and a spiritual decision in a lot of ways and then the piece ends with me live injecting myself with testosterone yeah, the, the the circle was one thing I was going to ask about because, um, you know, I, I watched the video and anyone who is going to listen to this should also go and watch the video because the, the I feel like the performative acts that are going on along with the sound that we're hearing, just, uh, I mean, it's 
obviously part of the piece. And that actually, that's was something I wanted to ask you about. Was this always going to be a perform like a fixed media with performance art, or did the performance art come later, or like how did how did this all come together in 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 your uh, in the kind of creative timeline? Yeah. So the the poem I wrote. Um, three or four months before starting tea and I knew I wanted to record my voice every day to track it track its change from my own curiosity and I didn't really know what I was going to do with the poem until probably four months into recording it and that's when I started to to see a piece evolving from it and hear things that were underneath the poem and hear how the different timbres of my voice would would sit out as a, a musical composition. And I also knew that I didn't want it to just be audio because I felt like a lot of the piece was, was being enacted on my body. And I, w- I was documenting that through taking recordings of it, but it was my physical body that I was making art out of uh, through taking testosterone. So that's when I started to think about some of the live elements. And the testosterone injection probably came was the first idea that came to me just because in some ways it, it's so obvious like my voice is getting lower because of that like why don't I make a, a microcosm of that in in the piece itself and show how this is an ongoing decision basically it's not something you decide once um and then go on it's something I decide every week um though I have been on and off testosterone so it's been not an every week decision right. but <laughs> yeah I mean, the text alone kind of leaves you exposed in a number of ways. And I think the performance art really heightens that. Uh, we see your face. We see your eyes. We see your body language. We connect to a real person during performance. I mean, and, that, and that's how I... That's why I really suggest that the listeners of this podcast go and watch the video. Because it, it truly is a part of it. Because you you know you're not just hearing... Like, your voice is... It's recorded in such a way that it's, you know, it's still very um, intimate, but also the performance aspect of it allows the, you know, the the viewer slash listener of the piece to really connect with you as a person. Yeah, I, I think that was some of the intention too. Is that it seems off to me to just have it be some disembodied voice, press play, or sitting in the room. Uh, just since it, the piece was so much about the the way I physically interact with the world and how that changes after going on tea. There's there's a song like about halfway through that you're singing. I was curious, like what that was that anything? Was that just a song that you composed? Was it a reference to something? Yeah. So that song is borrowed from the reclaiming witchcraft tradition. Uh, I went to witch camp. California Witch Camp in 2017 and that was a song, there's a lot of songs that you learn at Witch Camp and kind of in the folk tradition you often don't know the authors of these songs and they're they're shared didactically and orally and then they shift and I don't even know if that's like how the song goes um, when someone first composed it but that's where I learned that song and it just felt very real to me in terms of my gender transition to um and especially in that second movement coming in on this threshold experience um so i I used that song and and processed it and 
with lots of delays and stuff like that to create this atmosphere of otherworldliness and kind of being on the edge of that gender transition in a more spiritual way. I think one of the most powerful statements for me in this work is the line that you that we hear very clearly. It's almost, you know, it's um, highlighted through, you know, a lot of the text is kind of overlapped and, you know, you, you pick out certain things here and there. But this, this line, I've, I felt like, as the listener, was really highlighted. And it's, I am making room for my contradictions. And can you, can you just kind of talk about what that means in this piece, what that means to you? Right. So especially being non-binary, I feel like there, there are many gender contradictions that I experience every day. And I think a lot of people have different contradictions. Um, so I've heard a lot of cisgender people connect to that line in particular, because I think it, it does point to something that's perhaps a little more universal in that none of us always have a stable sense of self and will shape shift throughout our lives and things about us change. Um, so for me, as a non-binary trans person, it, it felt like injecting testosterone, going on that journey was making room for those contradictions of not being in the space of man and not wanting to ever go to that space of man or pass as a cis man, but still wanting to experience testosterone and lower my voice and be more masculine presenting. Um, so that felt like a contradiction to me in a lot of ways. Um, so that's the more literal meaning of it, but I think it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Well, I think the concert's going to start downstairs. I mean, and uh, before before we go, can you can you kind of tell us like where people can a see the video and b like uh, if they if they feel so compelled, you know, reach out um, either via your website or social media or anything like that. Yeah. So my website is swellingtoncomposer.com. My SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash swellingtoncomposer. And you can find the video by going to YouTube and just typing in when my body becomes the art, Wellington, and it should come up there. Awesome. So we're going to listen to that right now. This is When My Body Becomes the Art by Silent Wellington. Enjoy. Tuesday, March 28th, and they say this is my rebirth day, that I might remember this day for the rest of my life. It is Tuesday, April 4th, day 7 of this hospital. It is Thursday, April 6th. Here's what I know so far. Day 8 of testosterone. Woman and man are archetypes for whom gender is meaningful. Day 15 of tea. Masculine and feminine are unattached to the aforementioned. Day 18 of testosterone. Gender is a social construct, particular to time and Day 36 of testosterone. Masculine and feminine are divine and exist in everyone. Masculine and feminine are meaningless and non-discriminate. Day 57 of testosterone. as a prefix moving Day 75 of testosterone. We are always moving towards Day 82 of testosterone. Day 105 of testosterone. Day 113 of testosterone. Day 117 of testosterone. Day 127 of testosterone. 
sometimes for Day the first time in their life. Disaster. Being on hormones is not required. Day 164 of disaster. Especially trans. Day If I find ways to use this prefix, can I claim it as my own? I ask, where is my voice? Where is my voice? Where is my voice? With me all along, but can you hear me yet? Can you hear me yet? I'm supposed to write a poem right now. Then I will tear it apart. I stutter because I want to make it impersonal, but this manila folder on my desk keeps staring at me. I'd like to pretend it means something. That in going this far, I have become trans enough. How will I substitute this? Maybe this journey towards a way the prefix doesn't actually specify direction is just an ongoing argument for external validation. I know it doesn't have to be that way. In this poem, I have used the word I ten times. Tell me this isn't self-absorbed. Tell me everyone is on a journey of becoming and no one is done transitioning. Tell me we just talk more about our journeys because they can often be more visible. Tell me my trans is in the right direction. Tell me it's not all in my head. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Right. The letter in the folder uses my birth name. I could make some deal out of this, but it is my professional name after all. The letter never once messes up a pronoun. It uses words like strongly and persistently, desire, desire to, to be, be less feminine, feminine, a 21-year-old biological female, androgynous identity, significant mind-body conflict, gender queer, non-binary, demi-boy, I'd wish they used an I for boy, gender-neutral pronouns, masculine attitude, significant reduction of personal distress, persistent gender non-conforming identification, goals for transition, presents as non-binary in areas of school, work, and social circles, not fully disclosed their gender identity, Psychologically ready to proceed with hormone therapy. If this was a queer theory class, we would discuss how identity is unstable. Reaching for meaning pushes it further away. Longing for a sense of self destroys the sense of self. Longing for a sense of self destroys the sense of self. We must allow room for contradictions. Perhaps my contradiction is the numbness of reading this letter and the urgency with which I will deliver it.
It's in my throat. An itch. Like, I have to keep clearing it? Or drinking water? A weight. Like everything yet unsaid is collecting there. Preparing the chords for song. I returned to the railroad tracks because I thought I would meet someone there. Brown hair swinging in the wind, blue dress and bare feet waving at me. She wasn't there, though. I think I left her on a vision quest. Sitting in the woods with twigs in her earth-tangled hair, reflecting jungles in her eyes, crouching by the river, sharpening a knife. She flits out like candle flame if you look too closely at her. Instead, I stare into the eyes of pain. Stalking the crest of a hill, an impish grin on his face. of understanding and identities. I would surrender to mystery between my atoms, rejoice in the unknowing as a way of becoming again and again. If I could, I would accept this body as is, as grows. Without injecting my shape-shifting into its biology. Sometimes even I do accept her. It is only by outside, the others looking on. But I fear I will never be seen in entirety. I am not substituting this journey. I am not forsaking my past. I am not letting go of my feminine. I am reverently listening to all parts of me. I am making room. 
my contradictions. to be good. You only have to stay. Stay. Stay, love. Patience, patience, patience with your becoming. You are, you are the love. Trace the circuits of time, lean into divine, softly surrender our animal.
Finally, I caught up with previous Lexical Tones guest Nicole Carroll over a sushi dinner to discuss her piece, Orri Arcana, performed on an instrument she designed and built. Nicole is currently finishing her doctorate at Brown University. Well, I'm sitting here with Nicole Carroll. Welcome back to Lexical Tones. Uh, Nicole was a guest on episode 36, so quite a while ago, when you were still at Brown, right? Yes. Yeah. Like two years ago, three years ago. Something like that. It's yeah. been a while. It has been a while. But I'm still at Brown, just to clarify. Still at Brown, but via Australia in between. Yes. Yes. It's It's been a trip. Yeah. Um, yes. Thanks for having me back. It's, it's nice to have the microphone pointing in my face again. <laughs> yes, to talk about myself. <laughs> so this piece that you performed uh, earlier today... Uh, Ori Arcana. Um, wow, there's a lot going on. And um, I'm just going to tell people right away you need to go watch the video. So you have some videos on uh, your website, right? Yes, on my website, on Vimeo. They're out there. Um, maybe even on Facebook. So there's a lot going on. Where do we begin? I mean, first of all, what's the title mean? What is Ori? I'm saying it right, right? Ori. Ori. Ori Arcana. Yeah, an Ori is a mechanical model of the solar system. Right. And as you saw, it moves. It has. Uh, it's on a planetary gear system, so it moves at the same type of gear systems that an Ori would have. Also, because I've uh, been working with this NASA data um, for I guess five years now in uh, in different projects. Um, so it's a data sonification data sonification and data driven composition system um, it kind of made sense to stick with something that was related to um, the solar system to orbital bodies and um, Arcana comes from the tarot so I've been working with this tarot system for um, also about five years um, and that has gone through a lot of evolutions um, from just like straight um, acoustic writing into uh, software systems, and now it's actually part of the hardware system. So the physical um, player pieces um, are actually tarot cards. Oh, okay. Oh, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> so, I mean, we should say that this piece is for a physical uh, heart. What, what would you even call the, the object that you're, that you're controlling in real time? The object, it's a modular controller. Yeah, if you, it's modular. It's a controller. I, re, I do refer to it as an instrument because I think about it as the entire system. So you do have the hardware controller, but it doesn't work without the software. Um, and all in all, it is an instrument. It makes sound. Um, yeah, I know there's a lot of, uh, there might be a divide between what's a controller and what's an instrument, but I call it an instrument. Well, I think it, you know, I think it makes sense that you call it an instrument because it's capable of a wide range of expression. It seems like, you know, we're, we, we still have Carter Rice at the table and at Splice, you know, you, uh, you, you, were, <laughs> you were talking about, you know, knives and, and, some, and some things that are important in, in you know, how, in the quality of the, of the nime. And one of the things was, it seems like it can be played badly. Um, sure. I mean, if you just let it sit in a room by itself, throw on some lights, it will do things. And, I mean, because there are software systems 
that are running that um, I actually have no control over during the performance. So it has agency on its own. It does its thing. Um, so to play it badly, um, I think if you're playing with the system, it's just to, to not listen to the system and to not react and try to play with the system. Um, of course, there's. I've spent a lot of hours practicing the instrument, and it was very much designed for my hands, for the size of my fingers, because these discs are quite small, and it takes a lot of dexterity to to get them on the sensor plates. Um, so I think also just sort of clumsy playing can also um, greatly affect the the performance itself, and how like if you see me like like fumbling around it's it's not that engaging right and it seems like oh bless her heart oh she's so nervous and it just doesn't come across as like you know um a well-rehearsed um well-researched project well and and let's kind of talk about that because you were uh you were saying that there there's the hardware system there's the software system that is basically that's creating the sounds via the controllers um, that you're manipulating in physical space. So you were talking about listening to the system. How, you know, how much, you said you, you couldn't control what was happening in the software itself. So how, how much are you, like, if you hear something and you want to react to it, with what degree of certainty do you have that you... I can make this sound happen now because I want that sound to happen now versus I can do this action and there are a range of possibilities that could happen. That's a great question. Um, for most for most parameters in the piece, I do not know. I have a good idea of what might happen. So when I put a particular uh, like piece in play, it... Um, We'll talk to some algorithms, and it'll say, "Hey, out of these five things, one of these things could happen." Um, and I might know, like as you said, the range. I I know what might happen, um, but I never completely know, and that's the fun part. And that's the part that it sort of lets me not. It's not that I don't care. Is that I? It's a very different way of thinking about performance um, and composition because you know. The act of creating the system is the composition itself, and then when I get up and play it, it's just sort of a show and tell. Um, of course, it goes way deeper than that, but um, yeah, it's the act of not really knowing that allows me to sort of like be much freer as a performer. Right, you're you're interacting and reacting to what you hear, and then making choices that force more reactions, either you know, either correcting, I, I mean, I, I don't even know if that word really makes sense in this, in, in this setting, just because, like, you know, if, well, I, I, what, what do you think? Like, it, 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 if, if you did something and it produced a sort of sound, could there be a correction, or is it just you kind of go where, go where the piece is taking you? Um, I, there are a number of ways in which I can make something stop. Like, because the system might go out of control, and sometimes it does, so I need to have that level of control if I'm going to put it in front of people and not uh, destroy people's, yeah, hearing. Um, so I do have that level of control where I can just say, okay, this is too much, stop it. Um, so in terms of, like, volume, in terms of just, like, 
a particular like module in the system, if I just want to turn it off, I can turn it off. Yeah. Now, in your in your notes about this piece, you kind of mentioned ritual. Can you talk about ritual and how that plays into this piece? Uh, well, that's a whole other topic. Um, so for me, <clears throat> I think about this as a spirit communication device. So I, for me, it, I put it in context of, of Victorian spiritualism, of of the instrument being a tool um, to let whatever entities are out in the ether to speak. So I am the medium, a medium. The instrument is a medium. And through us, whatever is out there can talk to you, you being the audience. Yes. Um, So it is very much, in terms of it being a ritual, it is part of my practice as a magic practitioner. Um, and that's just sort of like the way, it's one of the ways in which I do practice. Um, my instrument building process is very, it's very personal and it's, it's very um, sacred to me. Um, like this isn't a thing that I would put on the market, it's not for anybody else. Um, and it's very much specific to how I work with tarot, um, and how I work with chant systems, um, and how I communicate with whatever is out there. Awesome. So what are, I mean, it's, it seems like all the sounds we're hearing are all purely synthesized. Is there, is that, is there anything else that's, that's going on in the system that was either uh, pre-recorded or, or it comes from a different source other than just pure synthesis? Um, so there are several sources. Um, yes, there is. Max does do a fair amount of synthesis. And that synthesis is actually a software emulator of one of my hardware instruments. Um, it's built on digital logic chips. It's just a binary counter. Um, and then the other sounds are samples taken from vintage um, synthesizers, as well as some of my other um, lo-fi uh, hardware instruments. Um, there, there are a number of samples, of field recordings, so if the piece were to play for its intended time of like 30 minutes, we would hear the sequence of elemental soundscapes, um, earth, air, fire, water, um, and also like uh, ether fires, or sorry, ether soundscapes, um, which are field recordings I took from a data sniffer. Um, urban. I mean, it's just like it's electrical sounds. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's actually a lot of samples, um, either from synthesizers or from field recordings. And all those field recordings, um, they also go through their own processes, like effect processing during the performance. You mentioned earlier that you were working with uh, NASA data, and and you've been working with that for a long time. What is what in particular is the data that you're kind of working with and sonifying? Um, well, it started as <clears throat> all of the planets in the solar system, and the first project was an installation. It was like a little planetarium. I bought a geodesic dome that's like six feet high, 12 feet wide, and um, multi-channel sound and projection, and that really was like a sonification project. Um, so now I am using mostly, no, I'll say only moon data, lunar data. So um, what I'm pulling is from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It's orbital body data, um, and it's basically everything that we can measure about, you know, what's out there. Yeah, we as a NASA. 
the royal we, <laughs> we as a society. Yeah. So, um, so that that those data streams are just turning into something in the piece. Right. Um, there's a lot of mapping there, and and my my computer downloads new data every night at 12:01. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's, and I said it, so it's like location specific, whatever. Um, not that that's really necessary. But yeah, there's um, like everything about rotation, uh, light, um, like noisy data. I try to uh, map it so that it, it makes sense conceptually um, for like brightness being like amplitude, rotation being like rate of movement um, across the space when we're, since we're talking about multi channel sound. Um, and all the noisy data. Well, you heard the piece. It's there's some noise in there. A little bit, yeah. Crunch it up a bit. <clears throat> so uh, before we we go ahead and listen to this, can you remind everyone where they can uh, go ahead and uh, you know see again see this because they really really should go to your website and look at the physical object and how you're manipulating it in time. Watch the video and uh, go hear more of your pieces and connect with you online or social media or something. Yeah, all those things you said, my website is nicolecarolmusic.com and I have um, several videos of, of this new instrument as well as some old instruments. Um, I'm also on Vimeo as Noisemaker. I know it has a funny spelling. Um, it's with a Z. It's N-Zero-I-M-K-R. Thanks to Matt McCabe, Bowling Green, 2004, who decided that I was Noisemaker. <laughs> and it has stuck. Yeah. Cool. So we are going to hear a performance capture of this piece. Uh, this is Ori Arcana by Nicole Carroll.
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.